You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. One year ago today, Russia invaded Ukraine. Four days ago, President Biden surprised the world by visiting Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky in his war-torn capital. And both Biden and Vice President Harris made the case for democracy over autocracy. The images were powerful, the rhetoric was strong, but does the resolve at home and abroad match them? Let's ask Dan Baltz, chief correspondent for The Washington Post. Dan, welcome back to First Look. Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning to you. Good morning. So Kevin Barron, the executive editor of Defense One, uh, who was at the Munich Security Conference, writes, Biden, Harris, and other world leaders pledged to help Ukraine fight for, quote, as long as it takes So why does nobody believe them? And by nobody, he means the national security policymakers and journalists uh, chattering on the sidelines of Munich. Isn't that the danger in year two of this war, that the rhetoric won't transfer into the vital action needed uh, to help Ukraine defeat Russia? Well, I think, Jonathan, that is the big question right now. Um, You know, obviously, the president had enormous challenges a year ago today as this war started. Uh, in rallying uh, both the United States population and uh, the allies uh, to to get fully behind the effort. Um, They had done very significant work ahead of the invasion to prepare the allies to be part of the coalition. Um, So we're now into the end of year one and the beginning of year two. Uh, I think the challenges ahead are equally uh, as great as they were last year and perhaps greater because um, of, of a couple of factors, Jonathan. First, um, the Ukrainians have had you know, significant success on the battlefield. They've done much better than anybody had ever expected. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, there is hard slogging ahead. The Russians are, are beginning a new offensive. Uh, the Ukrainians are preparing for an offensive in the spring. Um, that is going to escalate the battle significantly. And where that goes, we don't quite know yet. Um, the second aspect of this uh, is getting the getting the equipment to the Ukrainians uh, in terms of, A, everything that they need, and B, in a more timely way uh, than sometimes has been the case over the first year. So those are the big challenges. The third, obviously, is, is what you alluded to in, in the opener, which is the question of public opinion and public support. Um, right now, that support is holding reasonably well. There are a few cracks around the edges, and there's some division within the Republican Party. But it's going to take constant effort on the part of the president uh, to continue to make the case as to why this is uh, why this is important and why this is in uh, U.S. interest. That was a, a, a great rundown there, Dan. And I want to pick up on your second element here, and that is equipment. One of the things President Zelensky has been asking for, demanding, pleading with every speech is send us planes, send us planes. And yet the United States has been resistant to sending more advanced equipment, particularly long range fighters for fear of what um, President Zelensky will do despite assurances of not encroaching onto Russian territory. How likely is it that down the road, the United States and the allies will give Ukraine the, the planes and that real heavy equipment that they want? Jonathan, if, we, if you look at the pattern of what we have seen over the first year, 
um, uh, the Ukrainians ask for something and they are told no. And then they ask again and they are told no. And they ask again and eventually they're told yes. Uh, we've seen a steady escalation in the type of weaponry that the United States and the Allies have been prepared to give to the Ukrainians. And I think that the question is, whether it's the F-16s or other things that they may want, um, is w will there be any acceleration in the process of approving the shipment of those? Uh, and secondly, will there be any significant improvement in how quickly uh, things are shipped once there is a decision that the Ukrainians can have them. I mean, the, if you look at the decision that, it, uh, that w took place over uh, the shipping of the, uh, the Leopard tanks, uh, the German-made tanks that the Germans have and other uh, Western allies have, those have been approved, but they have been slow to get there. Um, and I think that's the other big question because of where the, the battle is likely to be in the spring. Um, Dan, um, one more question on Ukraine before we talk 2024. Um, you mentioned you know, the acceleration in the process of getting uh, equipment material to the Ukrainians. Our colleague Josh Rogan has a column in the paper today about how time is not on Ukraine's side. And that the longer this goes on, the more likely it is, and I'm sure Josh is going to correct me if I'm mischaracterizing his piece in the Opinions Roundtable coming up, but the longer this goes on, the more it inures to, to Putin's benefit. How, how much concern is there that time isn't on Ukraine's side? I think there's real concern about that, Jonathan. I think that the question as we go into the, the, the second year uh, is, will the Ukrainians be able uh, to mount the kind of an offensive that will push back uh, the Russians uh, in a significant way, uh, either to, to really regain territory. I mean, their aspirations to regain all the territory um, may not ever be met, we'll have to see. But they need to be able to have significant uh, success on the battlefield uh, if there is ever to be the kind of negotiation in which the Ukrainians have strength at the negotiating table. Um, and the longer this drags on, the less likely that may be. Again, we can't foresee the future. Um, and the Ukrainians have uh, surprised everybody and, and uh, outperformed expectations. So I don't want to underestimate what they may be able to do. Right. Um, but I think Jonathan makes, uh, Josh makes a good point, Jonathan. Uh, let's let's turn to 2024. Another South Carolina Republican uh, was in, Republican senator was in Iowa this week, sounding very much like a soon-to-be presidential candidate, criticizing President Biden for how he talks about race. Listen to this, Dan. Let me be clear: these painful parts of America's past are not Joe Biden's to dredge up and exploit just because he's losing an argument. I understand that President Biden lives in the past because he's been in Washington for 50 years. But we need new leaders who will lift us up, not tear us down. And so that was Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who has a compelling biography. But then what, what lane would he try to occupy if he does indeed get into the 2024 race with a Republican presidential nomination? 
Jonathan, I think he will try to occupy the lane that the, that everybody who isn't named Trump or DeSantis will try to occupy, and that is the alternative uh, both to former President Trump and to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who looks like the strongest uh, challenger to the former president at this time. Um, I think everybody else, and, and Senator Scott, uh, clearly based on that speech, is, is among them, uh, is trying to find a way to weave through uh, kind of the grievance politics that the, that the President Trump uh, has employed from day one as a candidate um, and from some of the kind of the pure culture war uh, arguments that we've seen from, from Governor DeSantis uh, in the decision making and the rhetoric that, that he's uh, used in Florida. Um, it, it, you know, that will be a, that will be a big challenge. I mean, I, I think that the question for all of the other candidates uh, is that is, is there a way to break this race from essentially the the two top candidates and everybody else into uh, a much more wide open race that would give somebody like Senator Scott or uh, Nikki Haley, who announced a week ago, uh, an opportunity to really be heard uh, and and to spread a message that that has broader appeal. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Nikki Haley, so let's talk about her, especially since you wrote a column about her saying she may be campaigning differently than she governed when she was governor of, of South Carolina. Explain. It was striking, Jonathan, when uh, I looked at the video that she used to open up her campaign um, and the way she had employed the issue of race uh, in that video. Um, and uh, she had several references and not in a complimentary way to the 1619 project that the New York Times published a couple of years ago. Um, she, she started out on the idea of combating the notion that uh, America is a racist nation, um, essentially casting uh, anybody who is talking about race as saying America is a racist nation. Um, this, is a, this is a person who, when she was governor, after the shooting at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, uh, made the courageous decision, frankly, that it was time to remove the Confederate flag from the grounds of the state capitol. This has been a decades-long battle in South Carolina about what to do with the flag. Some years ago, they took it down from the top of the dome, but they left it on a flagpole on the grounds. After that shooting um, in the church, she moved very, very quickly to rally support um, around the state and within the legislature to have that removed. Um, I, I think what was striking is that there is a there is a uh, a sensitive way to talk about racial issues, and there is a way that is divisive. And I think the question is which path will will Nikki Haley take? She has demonstrated in the past an ability to deal with this in a sensitive way. Um, but as a candidate uh, in the Republican Party today, that seems to be a more difficult choice. Mm -hmm. And and that is the, the thing that I find most fascinating is how she deals with race and how Senator Tim Scott deals with race. And in, in that matchup, I think right now, Senator Scott is the one who is do, threading that needle very well. Dan Baltz, Chief Correspondent for The Washington Post, as always, thanks for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Jonathan. You too. We're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists Josh Rogan and Jennifer Rubin. Josh, Jennifer, welcome back to First Look. Nice to be good here with you. All right, Josh, you were just in Germany. You were at the Munich Security Conference. 
does what you were hearing there comport with what I mentioned um, Kevin Barron of Defense One was hearing while there, and that is there are doubts about all the pledges of support, quote, for as long as it takes. Right. Well, in my four days in Munich, Jonathan, I saw two conversations, one that was happening in the main conference hall and one that was happening in the hallways and bars. In the main conference hall, it was a celebration of a year of unity and the resolve of the West and standing up to Russian aggression. In the hallways and the bars, it was a, a desperate cry from the Ukrainians for more and better help in what they see as their existential struggle to survive. And the gap between these two conversations is the perception of where the Ukrainians are right now and where our level of support is right now. And you know, you have to hold two ideas in your head at once. One is that the United States has done well and the Biden administration deserves credit, in my view, for mounting this massive 50 country international response, rallying the American people to support mostly $50 billion of aid and pledging to do whatever it takes, I'm sorry, pledging to help the Ukrainians for as long as it takes. But at the same time, you, we must listen to the Ukrainians, and this is, you characterize my piece perfectly, in that they're saying it's not enough, that if we don't speed up the war, rather than promise to prolong the war as long as possible, uh, they're gonna lose their country, they're gonna lose their way of life, and that even if they win in five years, it will be a Pyrrhic victory because they won't have an economy, an industry, or a government to really stand on. And in the name of your column, which is in the headline on your column, which is in the the um, Washington Post physical paper today, despite what Biden says, time is not Ukraine's ally. Jennifer, I would love to get your your perspective here. You know, we had the president with that rousing speech in um, in Poland, the dramatic uh, top secret visit to Kiev by, you know, coming after Vice President Harris was there in Munich with Josh Rogan, giving also another uh, uh, democracy versus autocracy speech. Uh, your view on where things stand as we enter year two of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The other interesting thing that happened this week was a small group of Republicans, not the people who are claiming that um, this is a fickle venture by the United States, but a group of uh, congressmen led by Mike McCall, who is the head of the armed services, saying, we should be sending more. We should be sending those uh, F-16s. And that is an interesting development. And we're going to have to see over the next few months whether the Republicans who are um, perhaps more in tune with this um, barroom talk, as uh, Josh puts it, um, the need for faster and um, more advanced weaponry without the uh, pantomime back and forth, without the cajoling, without the no, 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 and then finally a yes, whether they will be able to exercise some additional pressure on the administration. We hear a lot about the Republicans, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the rest who um, claim we're giving a blank check to uh, Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine would be thrilled if we gave them a blank check, but we're not. Um, those people who are really mouthing propaganda straight from the Kremlin. But there is also another group, and uh, you heard it, for example, from um, the minority Senate leader, Mitch McConnell in Munich, who is talking about giving more, giving it faster. And I must say, the people um, in the international community, in the kind of think tanks and the, the columns who have been encouraging and supportive of President uh, Biden are a little bit puzzled why we have this very grudging escalation. 
why not give them everything they need? Um, why not give them weaponry? We wind up doing it anyway, but months later when time has been lost and more people have died. So I think there is this ongoing tension um, within the foreign policy community, within Congress, and between the White House and Congress. Well, John, so I want to pick this. Yeah, well, I, I want you to finish that thought, but I want to pick up on um, Jen's use of the word grudging uh, on the right. part of the administration in the West. Um, isn't one of the reasons why there's such grudging um, when it comes to planes, when it comes to more advanced fighting uh, fighter systems, isn't the reason the United States is really super hesitant to give Ukraine what it really wants is because there is a fear that President Zelensky will not adhere to any pledge to not incur uh, or not to violate Russian sovereignty and thereby pulling in uh, the United States and NATO into a broader conflict. Right. What I was about what I was about to say in response to Jen's comments is that there's also a tension inside the Biden administration on these very issues. There are officials mm -hmm. at the State Department, for example, who want to be more forward leading in providing Ukraine the weapons it says it needs to win quicker. And there are people in the White House and in the Pentagon uh, who don't want to do that. And this is the basic story of Biden's foreign policy is that he talks like an idealist and a liberal, small L liberal internationalist. But his policy is controlled by the realists in his administration. And that's very hard for people in Ukraine, much less around the world, much less Americans to understand. Now, to your question, you know, there's two things going on. One is, you know, the fear of escalation. This is what uh, Jake Sullivan, our national security advisor, and President Biden will often say, well, we don't want to get into World War III. So they calculate a risk of escalation in their heads, and then they make a, a, a provision calculation based on that calculation that they made up in their heads. It may, or may not match the situation on the ground, but anyway, that's what they tell themselves. But then Putin escalates anyway, and that's why they end up giving the weapons. So I think that calculation of escalation is, is, is wrong, basically, and a lot of people like Mike McCall agree with me. Now, the issue of the planes is a separate thing because we're talking about a bandwidth issue. And, you know, you can understand that the Biden people Funneling $50 billion worth of arms into a war zone is not an easy task. And they have to prioritize and they have to decide what's now and what's later. And if you give them any credit, and I do sometimes, it's much more important that they get the ammunition to fight the offensive and then the counteroffensive than the planes, which wouldn't come until six months or a year later. But there's a good argument to say we should start training the pilots now so when they eventually come around to giving them, at least we won't have wasted another six months. So the planes are something of a red herring. But more broadly, the reason that this process is also lumbering along so slowly is because, in my view, the Biden administration is prioritizing unity with the Germans over unity with the Ukrainians. This was the vibe in Europe, OK? Because if you talk to German officials or French officials, what they say is, oh, this... Zelensky, he just wants everything. You'll hear this a lot sometimes from Biden people. It's like, oh, he's just greedy. Wouldn't you want to? This is what Wendy Sherman said on PBS. Wouldn't you ask for everything if you were under attack? And to me, that's sort of dismissive and also disingenuous because the Ukrainians are not asking for everything. They're saying we need the weapons to fight the battle that's going on right now. And if you think about long range missiles, sure, we don't want them to shoot them into Russia. But the Ukrainians would argue, and I agree, that they haven't broken any of their pledges to us so far. And people have died behind those pledges. So shouldn't we trust them? At some point, aren't we going to have to say to ourselves, we trust the Ukrainians to hold their word on how right. they'll use our weapons because they've already demonstrated that. So I think if you add up all of those factors, what you get is a policy jarble and a, and a messaging mess. And, and that actually does cost lives because 
you know, while the, again, give them credit, the Biden administration has done a lot for Ukraine. Uh, it's not over yet, okay? And the war keeps changing, so their needs keep changing. And we should listen to them more and the Germans less. That's my view. That, <laughs> and if we gave them the things that they said that they needed, the Germans would go along. Uh, but we're slowing down to meet the Germans rather than speeding up to meet the Ukrainians. And uh, that could cost the entire effort, although in our heads we'll have told ourselves that we calculated the risk perfectly. So, Jen, um, Josh says we should trust we should we should we should trust the Ukrainians. One thing that did come out last week was that the United States doesn't exactly trust China, and the very blunt, um, uh, I, I don't know, public airing of disagreement between um, Secretary Blinken and his um, foreign uh, foreign secretary counterpart in China. Um, to the point where the secretary of the secretary of state and the vice president said, uh, "China, you better think twice about providing lethal help to Russia in in its war on Ukraine." I don't know. To me, that's a, an escalation in rhetoric between two superpowers. What do you think? Well, I think this has been simmering along, and sometimes it, it bubbles over the lip of the pot, and sometimes it stays within. But this is what's been going on um, really since the start of the war. Um, the Chinese um, obviously are looking to exploit whatever gaps there are between uh, the United States and its allies. Um, the Chinese don't like the fact that the West is perfectly united. So, of course, it's in their interest to try to bolster Russia when they can, to try to drive these ways. But China has interest as well, and that is that they really don't want to be on the losing side of this. Um, they don't want um, the Russians um, as a weight around their necks either. So they're engaged in their own balancing. And if you remember just a week or so ago, um, seems like forever in these news packed weeks, but we had the flap over the balloon. Um, and that again um, seems to be not only a conflict between the Chinese and uh, the Americans, but perhaps within China as well. How aggressive do they want to be? How confrontational are they intending to be? Um, so it is a multi-layered, um, I think, uh, foreign policy we have to be aware of. And there too, um, we have just, um, for example, given additional weaponry to uh, Taiwan uh, to show our solidarity there. So everything we do in with regard to Russia and Ukraine, the Chinese see. And whether we intend it or not, it's a signal to them about our level of commitment, not only to Europe, but to Taiwan. And so um, I could not agree with Josh Moore that this somewhat um, fanciful notion that comes from mostly within the White House, um, that somehow we're going to make Russia mad if we give too much uh, advanced weaponry to the Ukrainians, I think is bizarre, frankly. Um, and it's counterproductive, both because of what Russia interprets that and what the Ukrainians suffer because of it, but also because of what China perceives. And they perceive this hesitancy. They perceive, well, if they're grudging about giving weaponry to Ukraine, what do their promises to Taiwan really mean? So mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, what's the phrase? If you're going to take Vienna, take Vienna. If you're going to support Ukraine, support Ukraine. Um, and that's really what we, what we should be doing. Josh, you actually wrote a column about all of this where you where you write, quote, Beijing is in no mood for detente. Talk more about that. Right. Well, I was in, uh, you know, Munich and there were the, the for the first two days, all the Biden administration officials were trying to secure this meeting with the China, China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, and the Chinese were playing uh, coy. And finally, 
uh, when they agreed to it, then Wang Yi gets up on the stage and uh, rails against the United States for an hour and calls our calls for us to apologize for the balloon and calls on the Europeans to break from Washington and join with Beijing and bl basically blames the entire Ukraine war on us and say that the United States wants to see a lot of dead Ukrainians and that China's going to come up with the peace plan. So that's like lies, accusations, gaslighting. Uh, it's not a detente. It's not a a signal that Beijing wants to sit down and make nice. So, you know, the Biden administration is their their effort to sort of put a floor under the U.S.-China relationship is totally failing, but not because they're doing the right thing, because the Chinese government isn't interested. And when it comes to Ukraine, I think mm. we have to be clear that the Chinese government has been supporting Russia this entire time as much as they can without getting sanctions. OK, that's their calculation. They've been helping the bus sanctions. They've been helping support their energy uh, 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 purchases. They've been giving them diplomatic support, massive amounts of Chinese propaganda. So I don't think the Biden administration leaking that China is about to uh, send weapons to Russia is the provocation. I think China sending weapons to Russia is the provocation. They're just noticing it. Okay. And my view, noticing it is not enough because uh, you know, if we if we listen to the Chinese Communist Party propaganda, they say, oh, we're neutral. We're under a lot of pressure. We believe in territorial sovereignty. None of that is true. And in Washington, we don't have any media literacy about China to separate enough, at least to separate the propaganda from their policy. OK, and their policy is that they're all in with Russia. OK, win or lose. They've chosen that team. We're on the other team. And the only way to stop them from escalating their support of Russia is to threaten to them or coerce them, because that's the only thing that thuggish regime understands. So, you know, we have to get out of this frame that like China is somehow really torn up inside about what to do about Russia. I don't see any evidence of that at all. In fact, I think that's mm -hmm. what they tell us, the barbarians, to get us to back off and pretend that they're going to be constructive, which they're not. And so I think we should call them out for what they're doing to support Russia. And if they go ahead with it, then we should punish them. Otherwise, we're going to be fighting the Russian army with Chinese weapons, which is going to make the situation worse and more Ukrainians mm -hmm. are going to die. See, Josh, this is why this is why um, we're lucky to have you at The Washington Post, because you can decipher the propaganda from what's really happening in <laughs> China. And the, Jen, in the two, couple minutes that we have left, you had a column the other day suggesting foreign policy may be an Achilles heel for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Why? Well, he is playing the worst kind of know-nothing politics to his know-nothing base, um, which is to kind of parrot the Tucker Carlson, um, we shouldn't be doing this, why are we helping Ukraine? And that's just dumb. Um, listen, um, Ron DeSantis is not a stupid man. He's an Ivy League graduate. I'm sure he has aides who have informed him, but that's not what he's interested in doing. He's interested in fanning the flames of the MAGA movement. And that's the movement that um, is isolationist, that is frankly pro-Putin. Um, and so he is continuing to play that game. Um, that may succeed as a political matter because that's where the base of the Republican Party may be. Um, but that is no way to impress either the country or the international community that he knows what he's doing and that he would be a responsible, successful commander in chief. 
So as the campaign goes on, it will be interesting to see if the Nikki Haley's, the Tim Scott's, who have been somewhat uh, more supportive of the administration, take on Ron DeSantis and say, why are you being a patsy for Putin? Why are you showing weakness? That would be a way for that third lane of the Republican Party to distinguish themselves by calling out um, the um, kind of uh, propaganda nonsense that uh, both he and Donald Trump have been spewing, whether they have the courage and the smarts to do that, I don't know. Right, that, that it's it, it's courage that <laughs> that I wonder. Josh, I see you're itching to say something. You've got like 30 seconds. Sure, I mean, Ron DeSantis is interested in winning, okay? You have to run in opposition to the person you're running against. That's Joe Biden. You can't run to the right of him. I don't think Nikki Haley's uh, uh, neocon revival third lane thing has a lot of Republican voters in it. So there's a difference between campaigning and governing. And I think the people who right. know Ron DeSantis when he was a congressman know that he's a hawk on these things and they are holding right. out hope that if he becomes president, uh, he'll switch, much like uh, Joe Biden switched in, in a somewhat the other way uh, when right. he got elected from Josh. Josh, we got to go. So, but the next time you're here, I'm the first question I'm going to ask you is, "How's the baby?" So, Josh Rogan, Jennifer Rubin, uh, thank you. We got to go. Thanks for, as always, for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.